Welcome to the Scholarly Soup podcast, brought to you by the University of Queensland Library. In this podcast series, we are going to meet with amazing women who found their success in academic and professional roles at the University of Queensland. They are resilient, smart, proactive, and more importantly, they are now working together to implement systemic changes that could make your career progression that little bit easier. If success breeds success, then listen to their stories and learn from the best. In this episode, I'm talking with Helena Rubinstein Dunlow, Professor of Physics at the University of Queensland. In 2016, Professor Rubinstein Dunlop was made Fellow of the Australian Academy of Science, and in 2018, she was appointed an Officer of the Order of Australia for Distinguished Service to Laser Physics and Nano-Optics as a researcher, mentor and academic, to promotion of educational programs and to women in science. With impressive career and an outstanding number of publications, Helena is recognized internationally for her leadership and achievements in the field of laser physics. I could not resist the temptation to ask her if lightsabers were possible in reality. Professor Helena Rubinstein Dunlop, good morning and welcome. Good morning, thank you. Helena, you have so many rewards and recognitions and it would probably take me an hour just to actually go through all of them and list them all. But one of your research interests is laser physics. And I just wanted to start by asking, do you think that lightsaber from the Star Wars is actually possible in reality? Or do you know if it is a reality? Uh, no, it, it's sort of reality, but not quite. So the lasers which are used in welding and cutting metals and all that are of the same sort of strength as laser saber. Uh, was used in Star Wars for killing people. So in principle, you could say that similar technology can be used in industry and it has been widely used and there are enormous amounts of different lasers for, for industry which are being developed. And the game that was made in Star Wars is still the game. It's still a game. Oh, my God, so many disappointed people now. Mm. <laughs> uh, okay, so is it correct uh, that physics was not even your first choice and that your mother influenced you to make this decision? It wasn't my first choice. I, uh, when I finished school, I think that, that probably most important part of it all is the way I was brought up and uh, by my parents, and it was that... Basically, I could do anything I wanted to do. So this was the way I was made to believe the world functioned around me. And so I went through school and I had good fun at school and I had a lot of good fun out of school, of course, as well. And then there was a time to choose what I would do as my studies. There was no discussion about doing studies. There was just make your choice. And so I wanted to actually study music. Not playing, but history of music. And uh, my mom didn't, didn't make me choose physics, but my mom only said, you know, maybe it would be good if you choose something that gives you good profession. 
So that was the only advice I got, uh, followed up by saying, but you know, you can do anything you want. So um, I didn't choose music. I sort of took her advice to show her that I know better uh, and uh, chose physics. Uh, actually, the second choice wasn't physics. It was mathematics. But I had very, very gifted uh, older brother who already has been doing mathematics and I thought I cannot compete with him. That's too hard. So second best was uh, physics. So I chose physics. So you chose what your mom has chosen for herself, isn't it? Yes. yes. Your mom was a physicist. My mom was a physicist and um, from very early on I could see how you know, researcher works and how happy she was with her choice and what satisfaction she had from it and all the rest of it. I definitely saw that, but it wasn't my first choice, no. So it w- w- just think for a second, if you did choose music, do you think you would have been equally successful? No. Why not? I think you, you grew up actually feeling that you can do anything. Well... So definitely if I would have chosen to perform music, definitely not. I don't have it in me, basically. Whether it's belief or lack of self-confidence in that area, I don't know. But I haven't trained, so I don't know. But the feeling is that I wouldn't be able to do that. Uh, As far as history of music is concerned and and, uh, all the rest of it, hmm, yeah, maybe. Okay. Okay, so the next question I wanted to ask is, was there the time that you found particularly challenging in your career? And what was it and how did you overcome that? So there were a few instances of hard, hardship, I suppose, or hard time. And uh, the biggest one probably was during my PhD. And it took me only so many years to realize this because I always used to say that I'd never had any difficult times in my life as a, as a physicist. Anyway, so the most challenging time was when my um, principal supervisor was uh, basically telling everybody that I wasn't worthy of doing PhD, I couldn't manage and I was too stupid and I didn't know my physics and all this sort of stuff and that went around the institution where I was doing my PhD, which was in Sweden. And um, that was very hard to take and uh, sort of causing quite a depression and self-doubt. But fortunately enough, I had very good colleagues and I also have had incredible partner who was incredibly supportive and who helped me believe in myself and continue. And so without that help, I suppose that probably I could have given up, but I didn't, so... That was that was hard lesson to learn. And it also coincided with the fact that we were doing one of my very first publications and uh, this wonderful person decided that I wouldn't be an author on it and I was fighting to be an author on it. So these are stories which are, you know, not uncommon, but in many ways when they strike you, you feel very exposed and very vulnerable. And that and therefore was a very hard time. But uh, as I said, without the help of the environment in which I was, which was very nice, and my partner, I think that I would have given up. Well, you have certainly proven him wrong. I have. <laughs> and he had to eat it up. 
<laughs> That's right. <laughs> and he did. I can tell you that much. Yeah. Mm. Oh, fantastic. Mm. I'm really glad to hear. Mm. And it's always good, as you were rightly saying, to have that environment where people help you see yourself through their eyes, you mm-hmm. know, because mm-hmm. people do have self-doubt. And in particular, I know a PhD is a very, um, is an exercise where you have a lot of self-doubt. Mm-hmm. So a very difficult question from my perspective. Okay. Can you describe research career in one or two words? So I was thinking about it, and uh, I suppose that I would describe research career as the path towards your dream in research then. So research career for me is following my dream and going for the stuff that I like the best to do and doing it. Do you set up really high goals and have high expectations of yourself as well? Sure thing. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. I was doing my research and I actually for myself decided that research career is probably um, a lifestyle. It's not really a profession. I mean, yes, of course, you have recognition, you're attached to a university, you know, you have all this exposure, global exposure, but it's a lifestyle. You wake up thinking about your research and you go to sleep, you're still thinking about your research. Yeah, I I think this is pretty much how I function. And I think that my my children, now grown-up men, would say that I am branded by my research dreams in everyday life. So I think that what you said would be right. I was looking around and I think it's probably not a very accurate data, so I apologize in, advi- in advance, but I found that you have published 14 book chapters, 225 journal articles, 166 conference papers, and now you are engaging in a new form of scholarly communication. You have two preprints. What is the secret of your productivity? So don't forget I'm working in a quite large group of people which I love doing. And so I run two large research groups. And um, in each of them, we have several uh, aims which we want to achieve. And each one of them leads to quite a number of publications. I do not have a lot of publications which are only in my name, if you saw that. There's always multiple authors. And uh, I always put my students first and postdocs first or last or whatever it takes. But I don't know what the secret is. Maybe a little bit of want of of uh, communicating what we find and try to describe to others where we are at. Mm-hmm. And hardworking. Mm-hmm. I think you have forgotten that. Yeah. <laughs> well, a little bit, a little bit. Well, you need but it can be fun, you know. Writing paper can be actually fun in that you have finished something and you think that it's worthwhile communicating to the broader community of researchers and uh, you want to tell them that and so and you want to impress them with what you are doing and so paper publication fulfills those those needs in you to communicate your results i suppose can i ask you do you remember your first paper Absolutely. Did it go well? No. Okay, can you share? (laughs) Yes, I can. So there was a paper that uh, eventuated from my, what you would call here, honours year. 
So that was, I was very proud to be able to communicate the results of my honors project with my then supervisors. But, you know, we haven't been born with knowing how to write scientific papers. And in those days, we are talking just a few years ago, there was no training in scientific writing, communication skills, anything of the sort. So you were supposed to drink it with your mother's milk and just sit down and do it. So my first attempt of writing my paper, of course, was totally flawed. But because there was a supervisor on it as well, my PhD supervisor, not the one I was telling you before, but another one, uh, then then it was made a little bit easier. And so eventually we we got the paper out. It has never been one of my hottest papers and most cited papers or anything of the sort, but it was a very steep learning curve to get that paper out. So it was like a lot of sweat and tears and what have you. But it went, went to the world and stayed there. That's fantastic. That's really, really good experience though because you need to learn as well uh, about the publishing process, right, mm. and what it takes mm. and, you know, how do you actually respond to reviewers' comments. One of the things that is very often recommended is just leave the feedback, the reviewers' feedback, for at least 24 hours because it hurts. Mm. You take it personally, you know, and then when you when the emotions cool down a little bit and you look at it again, you understand that, well, certain things do make sense. And maybe, you know, if you're thinking that your reviewers are your first readers, those who are reading your paper will probably ask similar questions. So, Oh, absolutely. That's, that's you know, this is what I tell my students in postdocs. But when it hits me, the first reaction is exactly what you describe. Oh, you know, this was harsh and this was not right and I'm angry, I'm removing the paper from that journal, I'm not answering those things and all the rest of it. But as you say, you sleep on it and you wake up and you think, okay, maybe maybe there was a little bit in it that I should take into account. So, yes, we do that and it's always, you know, we can talk about self-confidence and all the rest of it that we might have or might not have. But when you get bad reviewers comments self-confidence goes just solo down that you know is it always reviewer two (laughs) is it always reviewer two that is negative no (laughs) no (laughs) can be all of them you know and that's even worse and or or you know two reviewers who are totally different one is superbly positive and one is superbly negative and you think oh well i can play them against each other though that's so right. you can do that. But yeah, that's, that's a, a learning That's curve. a good tip. I love <laughs> it. I never thought about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Taking mm. it on board. Mm. Helena, as, a chi- as chief investigator, you are leading a large group of people and you have a number of projects that are actually running in parallel. So I wanted to ask you, are you a born leader? What are your strongest qualities and how, how would you recommend people develop their leadership skills. So first, are you a born leader? I don't know what a born leader is. So I don't know whether I am born leader. I don't know whether that category actually exists. But I like people. And I like working with people. And I like listening to people. And um, I think that that could possibly mean that 
I can be leading people. So born leader, no. Learned leader, maybe. But the most important thing is to listen to people and listen to their ideas and and uh, be able to also give them your own ideas and uh, get them on board for wanting to go along those lines and do it. So, yeah. You know, looking back at all those publications and, you know, every possible work you're involved in, I was just wondering whether you are successful in finding that work-life balance? I suppose it depends whom you ask. If you would ask my sons, they would say, no, she's hopeless with that. If you ask me, of course, I would say, fabulous. I have always worked like a life balance. If I critically look at it, um, no. It has always been full on and uh, a lot of times 24-7 and uh, just running. So work-life balance is something that I am still learning So what is then your favorite thing to do when you can't switch off? I listen to classical music. I'm going to my first choice of stuff. And I do a lot of reading about music and listening to it and um, having fun with it, going to concerts when it's no COVID. That sounds really interesting. And I read a lot. Not physics necessarily only, but a lot of literature. I want to bring us to discuss a little bit of a different matter. So women are still widely underrepresented in in physics. In one of your interviews, you actually talking about fantastic blinkers, referring to the fact that you have likely been ignoring anything that was going against gender and it was probably for quite a long time. So do you actually see things changing right now in academia? And what in particular stands out for you? What is changing? Is there any positive change happening? So I think that a lot of positive change is happening. But on the other hand, if I were critical, I would say that those changes are unfortunately happening very slowly. Uh, so we all, all organizations around the world have equity, diversity and inclusion committees and actions and programs like our SAGE program in Australia or Athena Swan in, in the UK. And so everybody is trying to do something. Is that something enough? That was basically your question. Uh, Do I see big changes? I see some changes, but as I said, I would say that those changes are unfortunately incredibly slow. Do I have good solutions for it? I think that there are solutions we can look at and... uh, These can be discussed at length. And I think that we are much more alert to to the problems that are still existing. And if you take physics, it's a typical, especially my field, it's uh, quantum physics and um, biophysics. In quantum physics, there's almost, there are almost no women. And, you know, there are articles now coming out Uh, quantum physics needs women because we are talking about the pool of society, 50% of the the pool, which is not tapped into. And uh, the question is, why aren't we doing it? Why is it so difficult for women to, for example, be represented equally or represented in bigger numbers in quantum? 
And uh, very often people point to uh, culture of the institution. And uh, that's something that I think we should be working on. It's a culture of the institution. And um, that's a very broad term. It's a very general term. But I think that women very often get out of doing science at higher levels because of the lack of proper culture around them. Mm. So that's something to address. Another thing to address is uh, looking at um, uh, employment um, perspectives for people in those fields and uh, make it m- much more equal. So, you know, the, the biggest problem is unconscious and implicit bias. So I think that there are simple things that can be done, like every meeting, telling people about unconscious and implicit bias and making people accountable to it and... Uh, all the time looking at the methods that would promote gender equity. So one very simple thing would be to have, uh, when you try to employ new people, to always have two positions, uh, one for males in that area and one for females, and assess them separately rather than together because it has been proven uh, that when the assessment is done, together there is a lot of unconscious bias not only from men's point of view but also from women who are on the committees so to avoid that assessing them separately is probably one good solution and you know if you would ask me 20 or 30 years ago whether I thought that having women only positions was a good move to change the balance in the field I would be I was totally against it uh, and now I think it's a fantastic idea. I think that if it's done properly, it's the thing that can change the balance quite mm-hmm. substantially. And it's very important to do it because, you know, there is a lot of untapped potential that we are not using if we let all the women leave science. I can't agree more. And especially mm-hmm. in the point that you're making that, you know, assessment, like separate assessment for different positions... Um, there is also, sorry to interrupt uh-huh. you, but there is also another thing that, that really is, you know, deeply in my mind at the moment, and it is the question is whether we are doing science right as far as diversity uh, and inclusion is concerned and gender equity. The norms that have been set up for how we do science and what is success in science have been set up by old men 100 years ago. Okay, And it was comfortable in their frame of reference and this is still what we are doing. So the question to ask is, are we doing it right? Are we assessing people right? And I think that we are not. And I think that that has to be a little bit of change in order to accommodate the life of today and the reality of today of how science is being done. And it's not only important for for young women it's also important for young men because those norms that have been set up then are pretty awful and i think on top of that women <coughs> very often have career interruption because they have to that's right you know they have family mm. to take care of and you know the saddest thing is now quite often i talk to women and um, they're very ambitious and they want to make their career be the center of their attention and uh, 
they make a choice of not having family and not having partner in order to be free to progress their career. And I find it, okay, if it's their choice, that's great. But if it is to fulfill the requirements that the assessment of success in research career is, that it's very sad. Yeah, absolutely. So right. I think that, that, you know, again, going back to culture at every workplace is something that we have to look at and also assessing science in a different yeah. way, what success is. And I think culture is actually the most difficult thing you can change, mm. you can attempt to change and it takes quite mm. a long time. Yeah, but if, you, if you're conscious about it, you, you can do changes. You know, change is something that we fear, but at the same time, which gives us a lot of new insights to things. And so just persuading people to look at change is something that could be very helpful. I wish we could just take that lightsaber and just cut it off. <laughs> well, that would, nice. <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice. That would be nice. We need your help with that, mm, Helena. <laughs> that's right. Mm. Uh, well, another question I wanted to ask is, what best advice would you give to yourself at the time when you started your academic career? Go for it. That would be my advice. Go for your dreams and just believe in yourself and, and do it. Be assertive. Be persistent. You know, that sort of comes with the game. But I think that the biggest one is to believe that you can do anything. And if you choose to do something, you will do it well. And I think that this is what I would say to younger people now as well. Go and, for your dreams. And dream big. Yeah, dream, big. dream big. Definitely dream big. Yeah. So do you have a favorite quote? Yes, I do. I actually recently have been looking at Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as everybody else did, as of her recent death. And I read a, I read a book about her and I looked at a lot of stuff that she presented. And one of the quotes that stayed with me is, I will read it out to you. As women achieve power, the barriers will fall. As society sees what women can do, as women see what women can do, there will be more women out there doing things and we'll all be better off because of it. That is such a fantastic way to finish our conversation today, Helena. Thank you so much for your time and Thank this you. insightful conversation. And we wish you all the very best. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Women Finding Success. The podcast series was initiated by the Sage Athena Swan team at the University of Queensland. Thanks to Workplace Diversity and Inclusion Team and Gender Steering Committee for their support and coordination. The series is produced by Dr. Elena Danilova with technical production by John Anderson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe or write a review on the platform you get your podcast from. Thank you for listening.